at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions concerning God's word as you're studying a passage and maybe are challenged by it. You need some help or personal issue in your life or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on. Uh, By God's grace, we will respond and be as helpful as we can from God's word. The only book he ever wrote. All you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. The number is 843-525-1859. We also have a toll free number for our many internet listeners and you can reach us at 877 the call letters of the station, WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or many people don't want to do that. They're just more comfortable dictating their question, and we're happy to receive it that way. And many folks uh, during this hour email us directly into the studio, and you can do so at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP Dot net. Rick, let's go to our first caller. I think we already have someone waiting on the air. Indeed we do, Pastor. Let's go to the now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning to you both. Hope you're having a great day. Yes, thanks for calling. How can we help? Um, I just uh, wanted to go and see uh, the movie Noah, just, just as a critic, a, a Christian critic, I guess you would say. I, I have people that uh, in my family that um, could could easily be deceived by uh, something that they, they, they have just enough truth in it to, uh, you know, to kind of draw, draw people in. And I don't want people to be deceived, so my goal was to take notes. I used my cell phone light, took uh, two big pages of notes. It was, it was pretty, pretty awesome, actually. Um, I'm kind of... Um, I'm on a mission here. I just want to post on Facebook uh, some of the truths that I I found out about this movie. Now, the question that I have, I have actually a few few questions, and I hope that you'll be able to kind of answer them all rolled up into one there. But um, some stuff that was in the movie, um, was was Methuselah still alive during, during Noah building the ark and wood? God have used Methuselah to put Noah into uh, a trance so that he had a dream that there was about the flood and that he was going to be the one to to have to build an ark. That's the first. Then, um, could there, could there have been hitchhikers on the on the ark that that Noah would have ultimately had to to get rid of to kill? And the last. Um, one, and I know this is a lot, I apologize, this is such, um, I have a real passion for getting this right here. Um, would the fallen angel offspring, um, and I'll let you uh, pronounce that word, Nephilim, I think it is, but um, would they have uh, 
willingly helped Noah build the ark because that that is indeed what what happened in the movie. And uh, I know you'll help me get straight, Pastor Brody. Well, I appreciate your question. In a week from Sunday, I'll be preaching a sermon on Noah. So uh, maybe I can answer your questions in more detail then. But let me just hit a couple of high spots that you mentioned here. First, the Nephilim, which is a Hebrew word that could be translated giants. Do you translate the word or the meaning of the word? They're certainly large people. I don't think they were involved in the building of the ark. Uh, The Bible indicates that Noah built the ark. It was done under his supervision. I don't at all doubt that his sons were engaged in that process over the course of a 100 years. Uh, But if you take the Nephilim, which I have a whole sermon on that in our series in Genesis, which if you go to searchthescriptures.org, you can listen to, I don't know how many sermons I did on Genesis 6 through 9, but quite a number where, where of course, the flood account and the events that immediately proceed are, are dealt with in the book of Genesis. But I have a whole sermon dedicated to the sons of God cohabitating with the daughters of men. I take it based on the commentary that is given through the rest of the scripture. You have to let scripture interpret scripture that the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, were literally fallen demonic creatures. I don't think Satan would want to have a part in doing the work of the Lord. So even logically, it doesn't make sense. But biblically, Noah was the one engaged in that hundred year period of, of building the ark. Uh, Mephibosheth, uh, he's a sermon in itself, uh, but the year he died was the year the flood came. And so again, if you go back to my series in Genesis, you will, uh, see, um, specifically, uh, how the chronology is dealt with. And I walk through it very, very carefully, but he is an interesting man, uh, excuse me, Methuselah, I was saying Mephibosheth. Uh, it says in Genesis 5.21, And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. So you have this brother Enoch, and when he has his son Methuselah, um, it's very interesting how his life changes. Uh, Methuselah is a actually a compound Hebrew word that means uh, when he dies, it will come. It's not the typical kind of name you would give to a child, but his name had a word of prophecy. When he dies, it will come. And so Enoch lived with the reality that he had a son that when his son died, Uh, it would come. And the it, of course, is the great flood. And when you study carefully the chronology in Genesis, you discover that the year Methuselah dies, God brings the great flood. It becomes a motivation to Enoch because it says, then Enoch walked with God to live in holiness. And so that's one of the effects of Bible prophecy. When you live with the reality that there's accountability, uh, that there's coming a day um, when God will reckon uh, not only the, with the people of this world, the lost people, but also his own people, where our lives are evaluated, it becomes a motivation to live in holiness. And Jesus uses it in that fashion in the Olivet Discourse. So um, anyway, nonetheless, Methuselah, he's born in the year 687, and he lived to 969 years old. Um, and so he, he, he dies in the year of the great flood. He's the oldest man who ever lived, who died before his father did because Enoch never died. He was, uh, carried up 
into the heavens. And he becomes a picture of the rapture of the church and then those saints who are left behind for the time of great tribulation and Noah enters into a new world. So anyway, uh, but I'm going to deal in great detail with many of these subjects. So a week from Sunday, Lord willing, if uh, the Lord doesn't come already and take his church, I plan to preach on Noah. And uh, because uh, the movie is just filled with distortions, can't even begin to recount them. It's just filled and riddled all the way through with gross error, makes my skin crawl. Anyway, so uh, I'm going to speak to this subject. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, very good. Our next question is prefaced with a, a short scenario. He writes, for many years now, the personhood wing of the pro-life movement in South Carolina and around the nation has made an extensive effort to get a personhood bill, uh, without exceptions, passed out of any state house. If ever such a bill were passed, it should ultimately be a dagger in the heart of Roe v. Wade. It seems the greatest obstacle of this effort, particularly locally, are entrenched lawyer politicians embedded within the hierarchy of the judiciary who are also professing pro-life Christians. As weak as their arguments are for not supporting such an effort, keeping in mind that no such bill has ever been litigated, to conclude they see no legal pathway to victory. I perceive their inaction to be not only pragmatic, doublespeak, and cowardly, but downright evil. My question, as believers and after making every effort to stay within the parameters of Matthew 18, yet fulfilling the requirements of Ephesians 5, and in particular verse 11, how does the church, both from the pulpit and the pews, continue this fight without bashing the brethren? Well, God certainly calls us to expose the deeds of darkness, as you reference here, Ephesians. And uh, there is a place for church discipline. Uh, Interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church has exercised it on some of its errant members, like uh, Ted Kennedy. They would not allow him to take communion because he was pro-abortion, which I thought was interesting. They had more spine than some evangelicals have. Uh, That was their expression of church discipline. Uh, certainly if a person is a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and he's a member of a Bible-believing church and assuming that Bible-believing church believes in the dictates of church discipline is unfolded in, in Matthew's gospel. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in quiet. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take it to the whole church. If he doesn't listen, then treat him as a tax collector, as an unbeliever. Um, but assuming that to be the case and you have a person in the body of your local assembly and he, uh, is representing obviously through his job, if he's a formal, uh, politician of some sorts, uh, God's point of view and he goes against it, then he should be dealt with. You know, Bill Clinton was a member of a so-called Southern Baptist church in Arkansas when he was president of the United States, uh, he, um, of course, on two occasions had the opportunity to, uh, you know, deal with this issue of partial birth abortion, but he was in favor of it. And uh, some people don't know what partial birth abortion is, but basically they would um, deliver the baby legs first, and then the doctor would insert an instrument into the back of the skull, suck the baby's brains out, and then deliver a dead baby. Uh, this was legal, of course, right up until one day before the baby is to be delivered. Uh, it's used in late-term abortions. Uh, Bill Clinton had the opportunity to speak out against it as a professing Christian, uh, but he didn't. Uh, He should have been brought under church discipline. That church should have thrown him out on his ears. 
but they had no spine, uh, no guts, no biblical convictions to do what is right. So there is a place for this. Now, uh, I'm not sure about the full nature of your question here. So let me just pause here for a second to say that there are evangelical Christians who love Christ, who are truly pro-life, who are against uh, abortion in all situations except where the life of the mother is truly endangered, which um, is so rare in the day of medical technology that we enjoy and are blessed with. But um, while they are against abortion in the cases of rape and incest and so forth, they would agree to allowing a bill to uh, be passed that made exceptions for rape and incest. Uh, And my sense is from the question here that you've sent to us is that you would find that offensive. Uh, apparently there's uh, a bill that has come up right um, now it's it's taking place in the south carolina that legislature the, that the fetus would be considered a person and so mm-hmm. uh killing the embryo at any stage right. would be like a tantamount to killing a, a person and would be murder so i i agree and, and and that becomes the nature of the argument you know the the, the liberal of our day rationalizes uh, things like rape, and they say, well, it's too traumatic for the mother. She has to carry a baby she didn't want, though certainly conception after rape, at least on one extensive study that was done, is possible. But it is certainly uh, a much smaller chance of actually happening. But it can happen, obviously. It's happened to women. Um, some... Uh, very famous people in this world who God has allowed to survive the product of a rape um, are, are are people who have been, you know, the, the, the product of a rape. And, and they've lived and they've told about it. A uh, very famous woman who used to sing at all the Billy Graham crusades, Ethel Waters. And she sang that song, His Eye is on the Sparrow and I Know That He Watches Me. She was the product of a rape and came into this world and God used to... In, in a mighty way, but the argument that, well, this is a constant reminder, and so I need to get rid of this constant reminder is not a legitimate uh, way in which to deal with it, because indeed, if life begins at the moment of conception, as the Bible teaches, then it doesn't matter whether it's a difficult pregnancy or a difficult reminder. Listen, the rapist is a difficult reminder, uh, and if he's caught, does that mean you have a right to kill him? Um, Of course not. And so it's an awful thing. But even in those situations, there's human life that that begins. So um, if you read uh, Palmetto Family Council, which, by the way, if you're an evangelical Christian, that is certainly a great uh, website and email um, notification ministry to be attached to. It's called Palmetto Family Council. And uh, Orrin Smith is the president of it, and it's a great institution. Most of these uh, family councils, as they are called, were started in the 1980s by Focus on the Family. Being a 501c3 organization, they could not politically lobby 
uh, over certain issues. They could speak their opinion, but they couldn't politically lobby as a 501c3 organization. So in each of the 50 states, I think they're in all 50 states, they started these uh, family council ministries in this state, Palmetto Family Council, that basically lobbies the evangelical biblical voice to local legislators. And um, if you will follow their ministry and go to their website and sign up for their email, it will keep you informed of bills that are out there and are, you know, in the forefront for Christians to speak up about to call their local representatives. Certainly, if a bill comes and it's here, you know, and it says that, you know, we should do everything in our power to protect the baby in the womb, uh, whatever circumstances, and that's the language of the bill, then you should do everything in your power to support that bill and to try to pass it. I think it will be very difficult for a bill like that to be passed. Uh, I think that if a bill would be passed, more than likely it's going to have some exceptions dealing with rape and incest. And again, you had people like Jerry Falwell, when he was alive, he used to often say, and I think he was correct, he said, look, we would fight for a constitutional amendment to protect life and even give the exception of rape and incest in that constitutional amendment. When Falwell advocated that, or Ralph Reed, who is head of the Christian Coalition, advocated that, they were not saying that they did not believe that a baby should be protected Uh, if uh, rape and incest occurred. But what they were saying is is that this would eliminate 99.9% of all abortions in the United States. And if it came down to saying, look, we're going to save 99.9% of babies from being aborted and to make this allowance, then that was a step in the right direction. And I think that was a valid valid argument. And if they could take that step, then maybe later on they could take the full step where the baby under every and any situation would be protected. So, um, you know, speak up, let your voice be heard, call your representative. And if you're not familiar with what's going on in the South Carolina House right now, then go to Palmetto Family Council and um, read some of the issues that are unfolding, because these are important days here in our state. Let's go to the next question. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. If you have a question on today's Bible line, or email us at uh, tbl at wagp.net. Bruce from Brooklyn, Connecticut. You know where that is? Uh, I don't know where Brooklyn is. Well, they listen to us uh, at the Worcester Mass station. Okay. So it okay. must be somewhere near there. Yep. We also have a, a Connecticut station, but but they're listening out of Worcester, you're saying. Okay. That's okay. What I, thought, I think that's what they told me. Okay. Uh, he says, uh, in a small Baptist church he attends, the pastor there has resigned to take work as a pastor with his father, who's also a pastor. Uh, the church had formerly been a member of the uh, ABA. The That's the American Baptist American Association. Baptist Association. Yeah. Uh, but the church has left the ABA. What do you think of the ABA? And also, one of the decision makers at this church opened the possibility of a woman pastor. What are your thoughts? Well, um, I, I don't think much of the ABA. They were one of the American Baptist Association. And there's a lot of churches in New England that had that, that are Baptist churches that had that as their initial affiliation. I was actually a member of a church in the 1970s that was an ABA church. 
um, in while I was a member, I was a relatively new Christian. We went through the process of removing our identification with the ABA, and we became actually a conservative Baptist church. Uh, CBC Church, Conservative Baptists, um, which uh, originated out of um, Washington State uh, through people like Earl Rodmacher, Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, and Denver Conservative Baptist Seminary. And that was a good, solid denomination. But ABA was one of the first uh, Protestant denominations to deny biblical infallibility. Uh, So they do not believe the Bible is inerrant, much like cooperative Baptists today who broke out of Southern Baptists, Uh, cooperative Baptists. And we have two in our own town, Tidal Creek and the Baptist Church of Beaufort, who give money yearly to to that organization. They don't believe as a denomination in biblical infallibility. And that's really sad um, because the Bible is either fully inspired or it's not inspired at all. If the Bible is only partially inspired, uh, if it's only inspired in spots, then you have to be inspired to spot the spots. Uh, What do I think about a woman pastor? Uh, It would definitely be a violation of Scripture if you're speaking of the term woman pastor in light of being a senior pastor. Now, there are women with the gift of pastor teacher that while they have that spiritual gift, they're not to serve in the office of pastor because that is an office that is restricted for men. When Paul gives the qualifications for an elder or someone who serves in the office of pastor, among other qualifications that he gives that are very male in their orientation, he says specifically that he must be the husband of one wife. And so if you can tell me how a woman can be a he and how a woman can be the husband of one wife, then I can tell you how she can be a pastor of a church. She can't. Uh, That answer that I just gave is not very politically correct. It's offensive to some. Uh, ABA believes in women preachers, as do cooperative Baptists, um, and they are doing something that is detrimental to the body of Christ because they are minimizing the high and holy role that God has put on women uh, to be workers at home and to raise the next generation of children and to invest in the lives of children that may not even be their children because of that nurturing, mothering aspect that God created in the makeup of a woman. They're minimizing that high and holy role and doing great detriment to the church. And you show me a church where they begin to give women the roles that men are to traditionally have. And then I can show you a church that will be feminized and a church that will, uh, will foster effeminate young men and a church that will also contribute to the problem of homosexuality. That's the day that we live in. It's a sad day, but it is the day that we live in. And uh, it's a day where um, we need to wake up and do what's right. So I admire your uh, church uh, pastor for leaving because it was an ABA church. He obviously maybe couldn't convince without knowing any of the details the rest of the congregation of the problem. But to be a member of an uh, ABA, like being a member in the south of a cooperative Baptist, is not a good thing. Uh, it's not a good thing at all. And some of these churches try to hide around it, and they argue dual, dual alignment. But listen, if they give money to that denomination, then that's what they are. That's what they are. They can deny, but that's what they are. When they give money, uh, they are doing that. All right, let's go to the next uh, caller or question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by calling from Columbia. Are you there, caller? 
Yes, sir. Go ahead. You're on the pa- on the uh, Bible line with Pastor Brogy. Good morning. I'm calling about the South Carolina Personhood Bill. Yes. 457. Yes. It's a, it's a bill that would recognize the unborn as legal persons at the moment of fertilization. Yes. And uh, if we do that, um, then they are uh, guaranteed a God-given um, right to life. And... Uh, I got you. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I heard you. Um, we just dealt with this question a minute ago. I don't know if you uh, heard me say it. Uh, it was one of the first questions that came in today via writing. And uh, my basic answer was is that Christians should do everything in their power to support this bill because God's word teaches that life begins at the moment of conception. And we should do everything in our power to protect human life and uh, to support this bill, and I suggested people go to the Palmetto Family Council website where um, this position is being advocated, and two, you can type in your zip code at that website, because many uh, South Carolinians are ignorant as to who their representatives are and who they need to call, so you can just type in your zip code, and it will bring up your representative with his phone number and how to contact him and to say, hey, this is what we need to do. Okay, well, I'm I'm calling from Columbia, and I didn't know you had just dealt with it. Yeah, just just dealt with it. it. Yep, yep, we did. Uh, did, did you mention the uh, the, the three member uh, committee and the need to, to call um, those three? I'm sorry, it's a five member committee. There's three Republicans that were targeting for phone calls. The chairman of which subcommittee is um, Senator Chip Campson from Charleston. Yeah, I didn't mention that, but I did direct people to the website, and um, Orrin Smith, who's a solid evangelical Christian, unfolds some of the issues and the different phone numbers that uh, need to be dealt with and addressed. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate you calling, and I appreciate your concern for the unborn, because that's a burden that we have. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us, as this uh, gentleman, Jordan, from Atlanta, writes, uh, at tbl at net from a legal or practical position, in what way did Judas betray Jesus? I understand the spiritual side, but practically, what did Judas trade for the 30 pieces? Was Jesus' uh, location a secret, and did Judas accuse him of a crime, something else? Well, it's a good question, and um, Judas did indeed betray the Lord. Uh, he was involved in the plot uh, prior to the crucifixion. Uh, to betray the Lord. Then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give to me to, to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. And so he ended up formalizing a plan. Uh, the Bible speaks of his kiss of betrayal. In that culture, we were just in Greece last week, and much of the Mediterranean world, when they greet you, they, they kiss you on both cheeks. They still do that in many parts of the world, and they did that in the first century, and they still do it today in Israel. Uh, when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, uh, we might say today, greet one another with a handshake. I think as the Living Bible rendered it in the in the 1970s, but it was that expression. So when... Uh, the Lord was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Um, Mark says a multitude came. Uh, Matthew said a great multitude came. When I hear the word multitude, I don't think of a few people the way it was rendered in the Passion of the Christ, where they had about 10 soldiers coming to arrest Christ. I think of a lot of people. John is most specific in the unfolding of the arrest and that he said a Roman battalion came. Well, how big was a Roman battalion? Well, there were different size battalions. They could be 600, they could be 800, they could be 1,000, and you had a certain number that added up to what we would call a legion, a Roman legion. Well, how big was this battalion? Well, John again says a Roman battalion, and he was led by a Roman cohort. Uh, The old King James uh, doesn't really translate the word as much as it does transliterate the word. And it says a Roman chiliarch. The Greek word is chiliarchos. And uh, when we speak, for instance, of chiliism uh, in English, that means a thousand. So uh, we speak of the millennial or the chiliistic reign of Christ, that he will reign for a thousand years. So a leader of a thousand men came to arrest the Lord. So the 10 or 12 that were pictured in the Passion of the Christ was very inaccurate. I'm not criticizing the movie. There was a lot of good things that were done, but there were some things that were just blatant uh, error. Uh, Nonetheless, um, when the Lord came with this army commander, the army commander obviously didn't know which one was Jesus. He's there with his other 11 disciples. And so Judas betrays him by identifying him. They obviously had a prearranged plan. The one I kiss is the one I'm going to betray. This is the one that you need to take down. And so uh, that's how it unfolded. Anyway, we've got another caller. Let's go to them right now. Indeed, a live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Morning, Pastor. This is Anthony. How are you doing? Hey, doing well, Anthony. Thanks for calling. Uh, And you too, Rick. How are you doing? All right. Uh, I'm well. Thank you. Okay. Pastor, you know, um, I heard you earlier this morning on one of the older Bible line questions. And you said that there's nothing else prophetically has to happen before the Lord Jesus Christ come back, correct? That's correct. For the rapture okay. of the church to take place, okay. uh, there, there is no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. In fact, there are no prophecies given in the Bible for the rapture. All the prophecies that are given in the Bible are for the second coming of Christ. Okay, let me, let me ask the second part. My question is also, too, and I know that's true, and I believe what you're saying is true, would you say, like, when we prepare on the East Coast here for a hurricane, and we know it's coming. Yes. Man, people say, all right, y'all got to get out of Buford. It's going to hit Buford. You know that it's coming. Now, when we speak about the Lord Jesus Christ coming back, and he says nothing else has to happen, would you say that we are in, Christians are in the right frame of mind or are we doing the right thing, or enough things, or the best things to share the gospel? And what should our uh, frame of mind be? You know, like Harry King, oh, we got to get out of here. We got to do this now. What kind of frame of mind would you say the church is in right now, in reference to the Lord coming back? And I'm gonna answer. I'm gonna sit down and listen. Well, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, when the Lord spoke of his second coming, and sometimes we use the term second coming, and people use it in 
uh, a way in which describes the whole second coming program, much like when we speak of the first coming of Christ. We're not speaking just of um, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, but we're talking about all that transpired from his birth to his 33-year period on earth. So when you hear the term second coming, you have to define terms because evangelical Christians use it different ways, sometimes to refer to the whole second coming program. Usually it's used to refer to a specific event when the Lord Jesus will literally uh, come and, as Zechariah the prophet said in the 14th chapter, plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, and he will come back to the earth. Uh, The angels there said in Acts 1, just as you've seen the Lord leave, and he left, he ascended from the Mount of Olives uh, in, in September. We're going, by God's grace, back to Israel. Maybe some of you listening would like to come with us, and we would love for you to go. You can go to searchthescriptures.org. At the top, there's some icons you can click on or some pictures, and you'll see the Israel brochure with all the details. Uh, We will stand on the Mount of Olives. We'll stand on the place that, uh, as Jesus made his procession on Palm Sunday— We'll, we'll come to the spot where he ascended up into heaven. We will stand in the area in which he will literally physically come. We'll look across the, from the Mount of Olives to the outer wall and the very gate that Messiah, the Bible says, the eastern gate, that he will literally walk through uh, when he comes again. Uh, it's, it's just thrilling. Uh, to to think about and for me to go back there. And I hope many listening uh, could come. We'd love for you to come. Again, go to searchthescriptures.org for all the details of the trip. The top of the page, there's a picture, and you can, it may not always picture Israel, but just click on it and you'll see the details. For the second coming of Christ, there's a lot that has to happen. Uh, nothing has to happen for the catching up of the church. So the Bible would make a distinction between the catching up of the church and the event when Jesus comes literally and touches uh, planet Earth with his feet and splits the Mount of Olives in two. And I suspect with that earthquake, that's when that gate will be opened up for him to walk through. In either case, Uh, The New Testament speaks of the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any second. Uh, You can't say that in reference to the second coming, uh, to that event when he touches the earth, because for the second coming to happen, there's a lot that still needs to transpire. The great tribulation needs to come. The one world government, the one world leader, the one world religion, all kinds of things need to happen for the second coming to take place. But nothing has to happen for the catching up of the church. Sometimes people um, take offense at the word rapture and they'll say, well, the word rapture is not a biblical word. Well, neither is the word Trinity or the term eternal security. Uh, But the doctrine of the Trinity, a theological catchword, is a biblical concept. The word great commission is not found in Scripture. It's a term that's about 250 years old, used in deference to the limited commission that Jesus gave earlier in his ministry when he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. I want you first just to go to the way of the house of Israel. And later, he brought in the commission to go to all nations. The term great commission doesn't appear in the Bible, but the idea that we are to carry the gospel to all nations does. Well, the word rapture is not a biblical word. And the Greek word is harpazo, that means to catch up. But in the Latin translation of the Bible, from that we get our word rapture. 
Um, in either case, nothing has to happen for the rapture. But when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, you know the rapture that precedes the second coming is that much closer. When you go into Walmart in October and the Christmas decorations go up, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And so when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, you know the rapture that precedes that event where he comes to the earth is that much closer. Um, But God's people, to answer your question specifically, I don't think have taken these days seriously. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming— he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Thief doesn't write you a note and say, I'm breaking in tomorrow morning at 3 a.m. If he told you that, you'd be ready for him. But that's not what he does. Um, He just comes suddenly, unexpectedly. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And so we're living in a day of apathy. I appreciated one live caller and one email that came directly to us about the personhood bill that's unfolding in South Carolina here, and it's an important bill, and Christians need to call their representatives and have their voice heard to protect the life of the unborn. And again, go to Palmetto Council's website, Palmetto Family Council for South Carolina, and uh, you can type in your zip code and you can find out who your representative is and who you need to call and so forth. Uh, And so if you don't know who those folks are, but lay all that aside, the solution to problems like abortion and homosexuality and the decay of the family is not legislation that we can pass. Uh, The solution is the preaching of the gospel. And God's people are apathetic in our day. Most Christians in America today are no longer sharing their faith. They're so consumed with the pleasures of this life, with the entertainments of this life, with uh, their Facebook pages and their sports teams and everything else, that the average Christian in America no longer is reaching out to the lost and sharing Christ. And that's one of the reasons America is falling apart. The only way to change a nation is to change its people, and the only way to change its people is one individual at a time. And that can only happen through second birth, and the second birth cannot happen unless the plan of salvation is given. Critical, critical, critical. So, Anthony, to answer your question, I think the church is awash in apathy. Uh, The church today is being anesthetized by the pleasures of this world. They are not alert to what is happening. And of course, this is what the Lord said would happen in the last of the last days, that most people's love will grow cold. As evil increases, the church more and more, instead of standing up against it, um, is uh, being dissolved into it. And it's a sad day in which we live. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. Or you can email us at tbl at wagp.net. As Joe from Maine writes, where in the Bible is the concept of church membership found? What scriptures are used in defense? In addition, where does the voting for different offices come into play? Trustee, treasurer, elders, etc.? Would you also elaborate on 1 Corinthians eleven three? Does this scripture mean that Jesus is superior to God? 
Uh, it's a good question. Let me deal first with 1 Corinthians 11, and let me read the first few verses. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. Uh, there were some things that the Corinthians were known for that Paul had no praise at all. Uh, this is probably one of the most carnal churches in all the New Testament. But it didn't mean that every member was carnal. And for that matter, there were signs of new life and a second birth. But then he goes on to say, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. Um, so he's going to go into a discourse here on the roles of men and women in the worship service and in the church. And to do that, to, he affirms that men and women are equal, but while they are equal, they have different roles. And to illustrate that, he looks at the Trinity. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. The Bible, the Apostle Paul, along with the Gospels and other places, affirms the equality between the Father and the Son. And yet within the Trinity itself, the, the Bible affirms that the Father is the head of Christ. Does that make Christ any less God? No, not at all. Uh, these are members who are equal. But even within the Trinity, there are different roles within the Trinity. And Paul keys off of this to say that while men and women are equal, they don't serve in the same roles. Um, the second part of that question dealt with uh, the concept of membership. Uh, membership as such is not a biblical word, but it is indeed a biblical concept. Um, Paul, when he speaks of the church in a broad way, he says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members. Now, some would say, well, here's the verse for membership, but I don't think it is as such. I think he's, he's using an illustration here between the physical body and the spiritual body. Just as your physical body is one, and yet it has many members, it has fingers and toes and eyes and ears and nose and all the internal parts. Um, while it is one, it has different members with different functions. And so he argues is the body of Christ, and then he applies that to uh, spiritual gifts within the body. It doesn't mean that some are more important. Each and every part is necessary for the proper functioning of the body. But the idea of committing yourself to a local assembly, I don't care what you call it, membership or whatever, is a biblical concept. And so, for instance, in 1 Peter, there's an assumption. uh, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So while we're on the subject of spiritual gifts, Peter in 1 Peter 4.10 assumes that you are a part of a local assembly such that you can take your spiritual gift and exercise in, in serving other believers. So again, that there is an assumption in that command that there is a commitment to a local assembly. Call it membership, call it what you want. Now, if I as a pastor... I uh, have someone walk up to me on a Sunday morning, and I've never met them before. And I say to them, and they come up and say to me, well, Pastor, you know, I just moved here from Timbuktu, and I have the gift of teaching, and I'd like to, you know, start a, a Bible study in, in the church, you know, next week, and would like you to advertise it and promote it for me. I'm, I'm not going to let him do that. I don't know him. 
Uh, and I have a responsibility as his shepherd to guard my people and to uh, guard against false teaching and, and people who come in the guise of being born-again Christians that are not born-again Christians at all. And so most churches do that through a process. They check them out. Are they a confessing born-again believer? Do they even know what that means, what it means to be saved? And if they are saved, have they been willing to take on the public confession of faith that the New Testament teaches every saved person will give? Uh, And I think it should personally be expressed through believer's baptism, post-conversion baptism. And so are they willing to uh, commit themselves to this body or are they a floater? Well, this week I'll go to Community Bible Church and next week I'll go to another church and the next week I'll go to another church. Or are they committed to a local assembly? What is their commitment? If they are errant in their behavior, are they willing to be accountable to that church? There's an assumption in the New Testament that that's the case. So if someone comes to me, uh, to our church on Sunday morning, and a couple comes up and he says, yeah, here's my girlfriend, and um, yeah, we live together, and but sure enjoy coming to your church, Pastor, and uh, we're, we're both born-again Christians. I- am I going to exercise church discipline? No, they're not part of my assembly. Now, if they want to become a part of God's local assembly, in this case, Community Bible Church, then number one, we're not going to receive them as members if they're living together. And two, if they become members and they go back to living together, then we're going to exercise church discipline. So there is an assumption in many passages, and I deal with this um, in my sermon on the, some sermons in the book of Acts. Uh, what about voting on different offices? Well, again, the Bible doesn't specify how elders or deacons should be um, chosen except to give the qualifications. And I think the approaches many churches take are very foolish. They'll say, if you know someone who's over the age of 18 or whatever age they pick and you'd like him to be a deacon, put a check next to their name. Whoever gets the most checks, you know, is now a new deacon. That's just silly. You know, um, God tells us that there are certain qualifications, say, a deacon should have. Um, He tells us that a deacon must first be tested before he fills the office. Right now we're testing six new deacons. Um, and assuming they're comfortable and we're comfortable, then we will ordain them as deacons. So there are, there's some latitude in that certainly there was a case where Paul left Titus on the island of Crete and he says, you go and appoint de- uh, elders. Um, so there's some latitude uh, in that while you have a specific example given by an apostle Uh, an apostolic command. We don't have any apostles here today. There is some latitude as to how elders or deacons should be brought into the local assembly. But among other things that we know that we can't debate over is there's qualifications that must be met that are not optional qualifications, that it's not some popularity contest, uh, but there are character qualities that reflect spiritual maturity that must be in place for someone to serve in these offices. You might want to listen to my series in the pastoral epistles on First Timothy, where we deal with a lot of these issues and some other questions that have come up today, like women preachers and so forth. Let's go to the next caller who's been waiting patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Hey, good morning. Thanks, uh, thanks, Pastor. Thanks, Rick, for, for the show. Um, hey, I had to do a Bible study um, with another uh, brother from a different church sometimes, and um, uh, the question come up about the coming back of um, of Jesus and when it would happen and what has to happen before it happened. And um, 
there's a passage I thought I remembered in the New Testament to where um, one of the uh, apostles have to come back um, before that'll happen. Um, and I can't re- recollect the uh, passage. I was wondering if you could help me out with that. Well, again, I um, I know you probably just tuned in, and people often do throughout the hour. A little bit earlier, I dealt with this question, so you might want to go back and listen to the Bible line. But let me just respond quickly. Nothing has to happen for the catching up of the church, what we call the rapture. Jesus could catch his church up before I finish the next sentence. Nothing has to happen. There's a lot that has to transpire for the physical, bodily second coming to the earth. First, he comes and catches up the church in the air. We meet the Lord in the air. We call that the rapture, the catching up from a Latin Vulgate translation done in the fourth century by Jerome. But for the second coming, when he literally comes to the earth, there's a lot that has to transpire. The apostles coming back, no, that's not one. That's not found anywhere in the scripture. What I guess you're probably referring to is there are two witnesses that are spoken of in the book of Revelation chapter 11 that apparently mimic the ministries of Moses and Elijah. And for that, re- for that reason, many people think they are Moses and Elijah. They may very well be. Um, in either case, these two prophets uh, will have to be here on the earth. Um, the Bible, I preached a sermon one time, not on the second coming of Christ, but the second coming of Elijah. Uh, because the Bible speaks of his return, which again would be a good reason to argue that possibly one of these two witnesses is indeed Elijah and the other is Moses. Because again, their ministries mimic the ministries these men had while they were here on the earth. Um, So Elijah has to come back. If he's one of these two witnesses, then he's included. If not, then there's two other witnesses that have to come. Uh, But again, this is all in reference to the second coming and all these events happen during the seven year period called the Great Tribulation. There's a lot that has to happen. Uh, The the one world government, the one world leader, the one world religion, the one world economy, et cetera, et cetera. And that will all transpire during the final seven years after the church is caught up. Let's go to the next question. All right. A caller just dictated their question. They would like to know if they should use their own testimony, a short version of it, while witnessing. Uh, There's nothing wrong with using your testimony, uh, but the power of conversion is not in your testimony. The power is in the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What's the gospel? Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures prophesied the death, burial, and resurrection, and that is defined in the Bible as the gospel. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if your testimony ends up bringing a person to the gospel, then great. But there's no power in your testimony to convert a person's life. And some people think they are, and so they think their testimony is not that significant because they don't think it's that dramatic. They'll say, well, you know, I wasn't a drug addict and a drunkard, and, you know, God saved me out of the street or out of prostitution or out of bank robbery, and now I'm saved, and wow, what a magnificent, you know, this should convert you. No, there's no power in your testimony. The power is in the gospel. 
And if your testimony becomes a platform, your changed life, and some of the most generic testimonies are the most powerful. When God saves a little girl at the age of five, and she's kept from sexual immorality, and she never got drunk and never used drugs, and and married a believer and started a Christian home, that's as much a testimony of God's grace as the drunk that God saved out of the gutter. And it took no less of the blood of Christ to save that five-year-old as it did the drunk. Uh, We're all sinners and all equally in need of salvation. That's something the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians totally missed. But again, if if your testimony can become a springboard into the gospel, then wow, praise the Lord. You know, thank God for it. But don't focus so much on your testimony in the end. You want to focus on the gospel because that's what will change a person's life. That's the seed that's going to bring about a second birth. And as you will probably be preaching in a few weeks, faith comes from hearing by the word of God. That's correct. All right. One quick question I think we've got time for. Uh, Dantigo would like to know, are there still prophets around today? Uh, Not in the office of prophet. Uh, Indeed not. Uh, The office of prophet where someone was able to foretell the future is a a restricted office. It was still functioning in the early days of the church for the simple reason that it was necessary because the Bible had not yet been written. Um, But that day is now past. And so the scripture says love never fails, but if there be prophecy, they will be done away. If tongues, they will cease and so on and so forth. Um, And so the office of prophet was unique. The gift of prophecy is uh, a unique gift too. And it had some unique expressions in the first century. Um, there, I think you can argue there is a foretelling dimension of prophecy that is still here, but not a foretelling dimension of prophecy. Foretelling takes the word that God inspired and you proclaim what he's already said, but God's not giving any new revelation. So when you meet these people who say, well, I'm a prophet of God, and let me tell you what God said, and it's not something you read from the Bible, then I wouldn't believe him because God warns you not to add or subtract his scripture. All right. Uh, about two minutes left. You want to talk about tomorrow's? Um... Yeah, tomorrow, Community Bible Church. Thanks, Rick, for bringing that up. Uh, Pastor Pavel Pachopsky will be here at 630 in our evening service. He'll begin speaking around 7. If you're coming in from work, we have a lot of people who aren't there right at the start when we begin with a time of song and ministry and worship in that respect. Uh, but at 7 o'clock, he will be speaking. The service begins at 6.30. He will give you some of the latest information on what's happening in the Ukraine. And Ukraine is very strategic to the former Soviet Union. Ukraine has become the Bible belt of the former Soviet Union and critical in reaching the rest of Eastern Europe for Christ. And, of course, uh, Putin this morning has 100,000 troops he pulled off a thousand, supposedly, um, about a hundred thousand plus troops uh, on Ukraine's border around five different cities. God only knows what is going to happen, but we should be in prayer for the Ukrainian church. Uh, they don't need visas to go into Russia and other places. Uh, Putin stopped uh, almost three years ago now renewing any American visas and other missionaries in Eastern Europe. Uh, the missionaries that are there are in quote unquote tent making ministries. Or maybe they go in as tourist visas, but um, he doesn't allow evangelical missionaries uh, into Eastern Europe anymore. And if he can, but Ukrainians have had full access 
into Eastern Europe. And so Ukraine is very important. God is sovereign in the end, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And God will get the gospel out through whatever means he uses. But God works through human governments, and that's why Paul tells us to pray for those in authority over us, that it might be peaceable with us. Why? So that we have freedom to share the gospel. Uh, That's the context of that command. We're out of time for today. So glad you could join us. God willing, we'll be back. This will be rebroadcast at searchthescriptures.org and at wagp.net.